Well, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we are doing a series where we're going through the first chapter of James rather slowly, but we're allowing for the Word of God to speak into the situation that we find ourselves in. James was a pastor, his, his church had been scattered, and they were being persecuted, and they were going through trials and difficulties, and so he, he's able to write them a letter that they kind of uh, distribute around, and they read it together, and it helps them to navigate the moment. And that's exactly what we need as we're going through a pandemic and social unrest and all kinds of layers upon layers of disruption. And so we're listening to the voice of God through his servant, James, teaching us how to handle ourselves in this moment. So James chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, read like this. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now, that you would speak to each of us, that by your spirit, Lord, through your word, you would help us to hear your voice. And Lord, would you help us to hear that voice in a way that actually changes us on the spot today, that we would be different people for having spent time under your word. We want to be a people who navigate the trials of life in a way that brings you glory and honor. We want to persevere in the midst of these trials, and we want to receive the reward of life. We acknowledge, God, the difficulties of the days, and we pray, Lord, that you would protect us from the temptations that are built into them, and we ask, God, that you would make us a mature people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we find here the promise and the problem. We find the promise that God says to his people of what will happen if they endure. We find also the problem that's built in to the nature of trials themselves. Um, This is not different from what James has been saying. This is actually looking at it from a different angle. When you read James, you might feel like he's kind of all over the place. He's going topic to topic. But as you begin to notice, he, there's really some themes that are running throughout. And he said it from the very beginning that we ought to be able to consider it joy when we face trials of many kinds because there's an opportunity in the trials to actually become mature. There's this reality of perseverance and perseverance, when it finishes its work, it makes us mature. The problem, however, is that maturity needs wisdom. How is it that we behave Christianly in the midst of such difficult times. Well, we're going to need a lot of wisdom, so we should pray for it because God is delighted to give us that kind of wisdom. Then he gives a little case study. He takes the example of a rich person and a poor person, and he shows that they have, in their experiences, they have different trials and temptations. If you're rich, you're tempted to trust in your wealth and your resources. You're tempted to think that that's what life is all about. So the rich person ought to take pride in their low position. The poor person, there's some trials built into that. The poor person can be despairing of their condition in life, or they can be tempted to to be dishonest in the way that they pursue resources. So each of them have this opportunity. The poor person should delight in their high estate. The rich person, person should delight in their low estate. And there's kind of this equalizing reality that at the cross of Jesus Christ, we're received on the basis of our belief in Christ. And it's a level playing field then. 
And so he's helping us to realize what this looks like in real time. And then here in verses 12 to 15, he's showing us the same thing, but he's just saying it a little bit different. There's a promise built into it for those who persevere in the midst of the trial, but there's also a temptation that's resident in that trial. So let's get to work. The promise is that the person who's following God, who loves God, will receive the blessing and the favor of God. It says this, uh, verse 12, blessed is, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So it's a blessing of God. It's this idea of receiving the favor of God, the pleasure of God, the happiness of God that results in your own delight and happiness. There's this blessing that we get to receive as people of God and it's built into the fabric of who we are and what we're intended to experience. And it's this idea of favor. It's the favor of God. But note that the blessings of God do not mean the absence of trial. If you're looking at what's happening here and if you're thinking about what that first audience was going through with the persecution and being scattered and displaced, they were, they were under trial. The blessing of God does not mean the absence of trial. Rather, it means the favor of God in and through that trial. So we're going through some tough stuff right now and we want the blessing of God, but we don't misunderstand that to be the absence of conflict or the relative ease of our lives. We recognize that we're going through a very hard season in the life of our church and the life of our nation. And we believe that it is possible to have the favor of God in and through that. That in the midst of the trials that we're going through, God can look on us and he can say, you are my people, you are being faithful, you are enduring, you're persevering, and therefore you have my smile, you have my favor, you have my blessing. And that's an incredible reality. Now there's a reward for that sort of endurance. Verse 12 says, having stood the test, that person will, re will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised. When you're going through the trial, God is telling us that it is possible to receive a gift, a reward. And it uses some language that really talks about an athletic event, that there's different racers and when the race would be completed, uh, in biblical times, what they would do is they would have this crown that they would put on the victor. It was like a, a crown that would go on their heads. And so it's saying, metaphorically, if you endure, if you persevere, if you go through this trial with faithfulness and, and what God is up to, if you do it in a way that's pleasing to him, if you have his blessing in your favor, then at the end of it, here's what you can expect. This is what God promises. You will receive reward, the crown of life, the blessing of God, this incredible reality. It reminds me of when my brothers and I used to do taekwondo. Um, we would go to these matches and they had trophies when, you, when you'd go to the competition. And the crazy thing about the trophies were they were incredibly oversized. So little kids are, are sparring each other and doing their forms and everything. And you're looking over at the trophy table and you're finding these trophies that are as big as you are. I'm not kidding you. First place was, it was about, you know, four feet tall. And so you'd look at that and you'd be like, whatever I need to do to get there, to get to that moment when they're giving you that giant trophy. And I remember the feeling of that to receive a first place trophy that was as big as I was. There's something so gratifying about that. And God is saying to us today that faithfulness in the midst of these trials will result in reward, that he will crown you with the crown of life itself. He will give you the blessing and the reward for 
your endurance. But here's what we need to notice. It's on the basis of our love for God. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, this is the reward, the crown of life that was promised to those who love him. So, so the way that we receive the reward is not simply just trying harder. Like I'm going to be great in this trial right now. I'm just going to pull it out of myself. I'm going to do the best that I can. I'm going to navigate this thing. But no, the foundation of our faithfulness really is our love for God. It's promised to those who love him. So we need to be the kind of people who are thinking about, am I functionally loving God right now? Am I loving him with my entirety? And Martin Luther, one of the reformers, um, he said something very profound. He's, he was talking about the Ten Commandments. You know, you got these different laws of grace. And he said, you know, it starts with God saying to his people, I'm the Lord your God who rescued you out of slavery in Egypt. And he says, you shall have, here's the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And here's what Luther noticed. He said, you can't break commandments two through 10 unless you've already broken the first one. You can't really break commandments two through 10 unless you've already decided that there's another God that's more important than the real one. That there's something that you give allegiance to and pledge to and uh, commitments to. You, you actually break the first commandment before you do any other sinning. And the way that the New Testament kind of talks about this, Jesus up, updates the language. What, what does he say when somebody says, hey, what's the most important commandment? What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So when we're thinking about how to be faithful in the midst of the trial, really it does come down to this foundational idea of, are we loving God? Is our love for God at the very base, at the very foundation of what we're up to? Or are there other things that have become more important than even God himself? And we're going to tease that out in just a few minutes when we look at these different temptations. But we have to begin with that question. Am I loving God right now? Is my love for God really orienting my entire life and experience? Or is there something else that really is more important? What is it that I'm daydreaming about right now? What is it that I keep telling myself? What's the narrative that I keep playing forward? If this were to happen, that would make me incredibly happy. It'd be like heaven on earth. If this were to happen, if, if I were to be able to go on vacation, then that would give me life. If I were able to get my business going again in a way that feels stable and sustainable, then that would make me happy. We have to be careful that we're not allowing something to become even more important than God himself. Our love for God needs to be at the very core of who we are in these moments and how we're handling these troubling times. Well, the second thing that we find here is not only the promise of God, the reward for faithfulness, but we find in this text that there's a problem. And the problem is that in the midst of trials, there are temptations. There's a tendency in us to go through an experience that's very difficult and to be tempted to disregard God. So trials are temptations. Actually, verse 13 puts it like this. When tempted. So we're going through a trial and actually it's the same word that's used, trial and tempt. It's the same word. And now it's being changed to talk about this reality that within that experience of difficulty, of disruption, of challenge, you might actually be tempted to sin. 
So you have an opportunity and it's the opportunity to grow in maturity, right? You go through the difficult situation. It's hard. It's rugged. Your faith in God grows. You pray for wisdom. God shows you what you should do. You navigate the trials of it. You, you have this greater appreciation for God and you have this deeper sense of who he is in your life. But not every trial results in maturity. In fact, one of the dangers of a trial is the exact opposite could happen. That somebody could go through a trial and instead of becoming more in love with God, more faithful to him, they could actually fall away. Their faith could be harmed. They could step away from that faith and they could begin to fall in love with other things. There's an opportunity for maturity, but it's not an automatic thing. And so we have to be aware that there is this built-in reality within the, within the trial itself that we can be tempted. So let's look at what that means. James is now showing us that it's actually possible to implode in the face of trials. When, I, um, when we first started going through COVID-19, I'm, I'm on record for having said over and over again, guys, we are going to come out on the other side of this thing stronger, better, more in cohesion with each other as a church family. We're going to become more mature. And I still believe that to be the case. But over the course of these months, I'm just being honest with you, there's now this, that, that hopefulness is tempered with reality. And here's what it is. I am realizing not everyone is going to make it out the same way. Not everyone who's going through this experience together with us is going to come out on the other side with a greater maturity. And it's actually really, really devastating to think about that. Some people's faith is being bolstered. Some people's faith is being tested. Some will come out very mature. Some will come out with a, a newfound disregard for God. And um, I'm not alone in that estimation. Barna Group has been you know, polling pastors over the course of all these months and the data is showing that many pastors have went from being incredibly hopeful to being much less hopeful. And so my encouragement to you is to just be aware today. Um, the trials are, are real. They have built-in temptations that are resident within them, that are resident in us. We need to be aware of that and we need to be working to allow God to use this to transform us. So when we go through trials, we are tempted. We are tempted in one way to blame other people. Isn't that the normal MO? Is that, you know, right from the very beginning of humanity, this is how it works. Remember in Genesis, uh, the very beginning of the Bible, it talks about Adam and Eve. It talks about humanity and God puts them in the beautiful garden. He says, enjoy all of this. You can eat freely from any tree in the garden, but of the one tree you shall not eat. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And what happens? There's a temptation there. The serpent comes in, begins to reinterpret the words of God. Are you sure that's what he said? Are you sure that's what he meant? Are you sure that he has good intentions for you? And so Eve looks at the fruit and finds it desirable. She looks at it and is tempted because she's looking at this fruit and she's beginning to wonder, did God really mean what he said? And is it true that what he said will really happen to me? So she takes and eats. We find out too that Adam was there the whole time. He was, you know, idly watching as his wife took and ate. And, and uh, so she gives some to him and he eats as well. And then God shows up to confront them. And what does God say? Where are you? What have you done? And what do they say? 
It starts with Adam and he does this. It's not my fault. God, it was that woman you gave me. That temptress, she took that fruit. She showed me how good it was. She ate of it herself and then she gave it to me. This is what we do. We begin to, instead of owning it, instead of realizing that the temptation is coming from within us, we begin to place blame on somebody else, somebody external. And we say, no, 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 no. It's not my fault. It's their fault. What does Eve do? Oh, wait a minute. It's not my fault. It was that serpent, God. It was that serpent that you allowed in this garden. What's the implication? It's not my fault, God. It's yours. It's not my fault, that I'm going through this season and I'm responding the way that I am, if it wasn't so hard, God, I wouldn't behave this way. What are we doing right now as we're going through COVID-19? How are we talking to God? I'll be honest, in the seasons of trial, the most traumatic things that I've been through in my life, I've used that language. I've said, God, what are you doing? What on earth are you doing here? Why, Why are you doing this to me? What am I saying? I'm passing blame to God. And I'm saying, it's not my fault, it's yours. If you would change the circumstances, I would change my attitude. But given the circumstances, this is, it is what it is. It's your fault, God. But here's what James says, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. In other words, James is saying, wait, pump the brakes here. It is not God's fault that you are in the midst of the trial succumbing to your temptation. It's not God's fault. Whatever your theology of suffering may be, whatever your theology of trials and temptations might be, you have to acknowledge, according to the word of God, that the blame is not with God, it's with you. Whatever you're struggling with, the blame, the circumstances, you can't just pass the buck to God and say, look, it's your fault. This is hard. Why are we going through COVID? Why is it lasting so long? Why is my business being destroyed? Why, why, are the relations, why is everything being politicized? Why, why, why? And we're saying, God, it's your fault. We need to begin to recognize part of what's going on is the trial is really hard, but the temptations are within us. We need to recognize that God is not tempting us to evil. He is not evil, nor does he tempt anyone to evil, for he is good. Next week, we'll look at his character the goodness of God and the gifts that he gives and the resources that he can give us in the midst of the trials. But we have to even say today, God is good and he can use the trial for our good. The problem is an inner problem. It's something that we find in us. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So that word, desire, that's an important word. It's this thing that we say, here's what's going on in me in this moment. I'm going through a trial. I'm going through a temptation. And I'm beginning to discern in me a desire, something that I want so badly, something that I just long for. Again, we begin to say, we begin to retell, we tell a narrative that says, if I were to get this thing that I desperately want, everything else would kind of go away. If I were to get what I'm really after, then I could be incredibly happy. I'm going after that thing. Now, the desires, they cause problems. In fact, if you just fast forward a little bit to chapter four, what does James say about desires? In chapter four, verse one, he's asking the question of this church in conflict, and he's saying, hey, what's causing the fights and the quarrels among you? Is it not your own desires that are within you that are causing you to fight and bicker and and just 
you have this conflict within the community, it's that desire, that unchecked desire that's causing all kinds of conflict. So we need to be aware that the temptation is really this thing that is coming, is, is bubbling out of us. The temptation is really the desire that we have that we're making ultimate. Now, desires aren't necessarily bad. Um, wanting something isn't bad. Uh, Tim Keller, he puts it like this. He says, it's not necessarily that you want bad things. It's that you want them too badly. So most of us aren't going to walk away going, yeah, this season's really hard, but I just want to be a really bad person. I just want to be mean. I just want to I, I go out and do harm to other people. Uh, you know, I just want to do wicked and evil things. Most of us aren't thinking that way. But here's what's happening. We have desires in us that we have allowed to become way too important. And now on the basis of those desires, we are acting wickedly. We are doing harm. We're hurting and harming other people. So we need to recognize that these good desires that we have can go wrong when we allow them to become way too important in our lives. Now, the truth is we can spiritualize our desires. We always say, I mean, we would rarely say, I don't think my desires are healthy. What we, what we typically do is we, we kind of baptize the things that we want in our Christianity. And we, isn't it surprising that when you think about God, he's exactly like you. Like he would do the same things that you're doing presently. He would feel the same way about the social issues that you feel. He would do everything identical to you because God's on your team. Are we so sure that we're dealing with an accurate picture of what God is up to? Again, Tim Keller, he puts it like this. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. You might just be looking at what you already think, and now you're kind of baptizing it in Christian language, and you're going, this is the way of righteousness. How do I know? It's what I want. This is what I desire. And our desires then are coming out of us and they're causing us to do great harm. Now, I want to illustrate this uh, briefly with a very easy example because I want you to kind of get buy-in and then I think you need to apply it to more complex issues like how we engage with politics and things like that in this season. But here's a really easy example and it's the example of hunger. Hunger is a desire that we have. Um, I read an article by a counselor named David Paulinson. He's a biblical counselor. He wrote an article for uh, the Journal of Biblical Counseling, and it's called Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair. I highly recommend it. I've read, read it uh, numerous times throughout the course of my ministry. In it, he talks about desires, and he talks about idolatry, and he illustrates it in a bunch of different ways, and it's incredibly, incredibly helpful. But one of the things that he says in that article is he talks about hunger. Now, hunger is a good thing, is it not? Hunger is that indication in you that says, I need energy. I need sustenance. I need food. Now, God built that into us for our good. But here's the problem. What if we make hunger the ultimate thing? We've got commercials, right? Snickers, where you see somebody and they turn, they get hangry and they turn into a different person and and then, oh man, you need a Snickers. And you give them a Snickers and they kind of turn back into themselves. That's the, that's the illustration of what happens when you allow hunger to become too important. 
you begin to harm people or get mean on the basis of this built-in desire in you. Now, Paulinson in his article, he points out the problem is not that we're hunger-centered or hunger-driven. It's rather that we're hunger-driven rather than God-driven. We, we allow for the hunger inside of us to become the ultimate thing, and then it does harm. That's what Philippians says. There are some whose gods have become their stomachs. They're so hungry that they make all of their decisions on the basis of where they're going to have their next meal and what that's going to taste like. So that small example, that I would say easier example, we need to now think about what does it look like when we're dealing with more complex issues. Let's begin to ask some questions. What are the desires of your heart right now? If you were to take the afternoon and just kind of reflect a little bit, what are the things that you most desperately want in this season? What is the narrative that, makes, that has the happiest ending for you? And then try to figure out, what is that root desire in me? What is that thing that I so desperately want? And then we need to bring it before God and ask if it's right. Ask if it's properly being expressed in relationship to him. What is it that you most want? We also need to recognize that the greatest threat to our faithfulness in this season is not the circumstances. It's something that's within us. The greatest threat to our faithfulness is an internal threat. It's coming out of our own hearts. The Alec Motier in his commentary, he says, the enemy is not, not only within our camp, within our heart. The enemy is our heart. We have these desires and they're now spilling out of us and they're causing us to misbehave in this season. So we need to begin that process. What is it that I most desperately want right now? And is that okay with God? All right, here's the outcome. If we're not willing to do that, if we engage in this unhealthy pattern, look at what happens in verse 15. Verse 15, it says, Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So there's this process then, and it's a process of conception. You've got this temptation, revealing a desire. That desire conceives, and then it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives, gives birth to death. You've got kind of this pattern, this life cycle. You've got, you know, parent, child, grandchild. You've got temptation, revealing desire, desire, creating sin, sin resulting in death. So it's this process and it's this, you know, um, experience of kind of going down. And that's what we're being told here, that if we're not careful with the temptations that we're experiencing, it results in great damage. It results in death. If we're not careful with what's really going on on the interior of our souls right now, it could result in incredible harm to us and to others as well. Temptation leads to desire, to sin, to death. Now, when you compare it to the other process, let's look at the other, the positive way of dealing with these things. So on the one hand, you've got this um, downward movement, temptation to desire, to sin, to death. But here's how trials can be wielded. You've got a trial. This goes all the way back to the very beginning of, of James and how he's been describing it. You've got a trial. And in that, you could consider it pure joy. You're going through something right now and you can evaluate it and you can say, this is opportunity 
for my rejoicing. Why? Because in the midst of this trial, there's a testing of my faith. There's a testing of the quality of my faith. And if I am faithful, if I persevere, if I experience faithful endurance, it will result in the crown of life. Not death, it will result in this crown of life, the blessing of God, the life that God intends for us. So in the midst of this, we need to be a people who choose life. You really do have an option today. There's two choices, and you get to decide. You're in a trial. There are temptations. Which way are you going to go? In the language of, of Moses from Deuteronomy, he says, I set before you today life and death. Choose life, right? That's where we're at today. We need to be able to say, we want to be the people who are going to choose God's way in the midst of all of this. We're going to follow God and his design in all of this. We're going to humble ourselves and continually bring our desires before him and say, is this right? And is it appropriately relating to you? Or have I made it way too important? Today, we want to be the people who choose life. Now, listen, this is not as easy as just making a choice. Uh, I wish it were, but this is more so a process that, we, that God is helping us to navigate this moment. We do make a lot of choices in this season. It's not just a one-off thing. We want to be the people who consistently choose life. But here's the good news. Next week, we're going to find out about what God has done to resource us, that he has given us new life. We don't have to do this on our own. God has implanted with us, within us, new life. And then he gives us all kinds of good gifts and mercies that help us along the way. And the best gift and the best mercy that he's ever given us is his son, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ that we receive forgiveness of sins. And it is through our faith in him that God helps us to walk faithfully in these moments. So yes, these days are hard. Yes, we are going through trials. There are temptations in them. Let's be people who choose Jesus, who choose life. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help us. We do feel overwhelmed and we admit that we are prone to try to put the blame on you. Because of the difficulties of the days that we're going through, we're prone to look at you and say, it's your fault. God, just change everything because this is way too much for us. But would you please help us in these moments to, to unearth what's really going on in our souls, what we're really desiring, what we're really longing after. And if it's not you, if you're not at the very foundation of what we're pursuing right now, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to repent and recommit ourselves to you? Would you help us to choose life? Help us to be faithful, to endure these difficult days and to receive the crown of life. Would you do that, please, by your spirit, for your sake? Amen.